Amy. Great are you, Lord. All the people said, amen. It's good to be with you this morning as we get ready to study God's Word. Let me encourage you, if you've got a little one who is uh, like an age-appropriate service uh, to attend downstairs, you can do that through grade six. And so you can follow uh, the herd or take your child out to the foyer if you'd like, and uh, their teacher will pick them up, and you pick them up then at the close of our service up here. It's good to be with you. If you're a guest here today, we're glad that you're here with us. We hope that it's been a blessing to you so far. Thanks to Alex and the band for encouraging us and guiding us in musical worship. We'll be now in a time of reading and studying God's Word. What does the Word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does it apply to me is how we approach that verse by verse. I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word this week, but that you've had a rich time all the way through the week. If that's not been the case, let me encourage you starting today. I grab a Bible reading trifold there in the back, uh, there on the welcome table, and I grab that and begin reading through the Bible this year. If you're a guest, make sure that you take the time to fill out the card in the, ch- in the chair that's in front of you. Let us know your visit here, how we can minister to you, how the Lord moved in your heart. We're in a continuing study through the Word of God, uh, God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In particular, uh, unity is our, is our first stop as we begin this study, and we are in 1st Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to pick up about verse 21 today. As we begin to, uh, Paul makes a transition, as I told you last week, as we really hit the pinnacle of his teaching on unity and the whole uh, teaching on the judgment seat of Christ. We begin really, and it kind of feels like that, Paul walking down the other side of that, uh, that crest of that hill as he makes a transition to some other topics he wants to bring up. Still much richness here, and I think that you'll agree as we study through this, much application for us. Today, as Paul deals with the issues uh, pertinent to the Corinthian church and their issues of division, uh, makes a broader application, of course, to every church and every person who reads it since that time. The last time we were together, we concluded our study of Paul's first instruction on the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, so Paul is going to start back down. Let's look at verse 18, if you would, and we'll read verses 18 to 20. We'll do a little bit of a review, which is normal for us as we do a verse-by-verse study. Because God's word is good everywhere, anywhere you cut it off, and you can pick right up there again, and you'll be enriched. And so I want to make sure that you're on the same page with us. So read in your copy of God's word, 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in front of you in the chair, or you can just read in your copy of God's word. I'll give you some verse cues so we can stay together. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Uh, Paul writes, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Let's pause right there. Now, as the Corinthians process all this previous stuff that Paul has been teaching, and you can catch up with that online if you'd like, if you've missed some of that, he has mentioned to them, they've been fleshly for so long, they've been holding on to worldly wisdom for so long, he really tells them that at the beginning of chapter 3 that he revisits some of these topics. And those of you who are teachers know the, the, the benefit of review and summary, and Paul does that here. And in particular, he's talking about human wisdom for a purpose. And as we get to chapter 4, he's going to illustrate how that human wisdom has been used to judge both he, Paul, and Apollos, and Peter. And so he has a purpose in this summary and this review and this transition to his next topics. Now, look at verse 18 again, if you would. Let no man deceive himself. We said last time, basically Paul says this, if you want to fix the issue of division, stop continually deceiving yourself. Now, no one would automatically put up their sand and say, hey, I've been deceiving myself. So that's something the Holy Spirit's going to have to review and bring to your mind uh, and uh, convict you of if that's what the case has been. And of course, Paul is relying on the Holy Spirit to do just that. But he says, if you want to fix the issue of division, stop continually deceiving yourself. If any man among you thinks he's wise in this age, he must become foolish that he may become wise. And what Paul says in essence really is, The church doesn't need your opinion on the biblical principles of salvation or of the knowledge of God or the conduct of Christian life. Because what divides a church really is when people begin to get their opinion or their experience in the world or what they brought in from the outside and set it up as the authority in the areas of spiritual life. That's where you have problems. And so what we said last time as we began to close up is really what the church needs to develop is an atmosphere in which, and what Paul wanted them to do, an atmosphere in which the word of God is honored, in which the word of God is submitted to. It's just taken at face value and lived out that way. What it says is what you do. And intellectual pride plagued this church in Corinth. It plagues the church still today. 
Uh, that's the person who always has to criticize, somebody who has to fall, find fault based on what they experienced before, and that never ceases to cause problems inside the church. And so Paul takes it on, and he hasn't stopped talking about it since the beginning, so it's important. Now, look again, if you would, at verse 19. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God, and again, verse 20, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Now, Paul adds some dynamic then to this cure for division. We've gone through the, as Paul diagnoses it, he gives the symptoms of division, and then he gives the cure. He's going to give some dynamic to that cure. And really, it's this. If you just realize, then, as it relates to salvation, to the knowledge of God, to the principles of Christian living, apart from the revelation of God, you really don't know anything about those things. That's the first thing you have to admit. So if you're deceiving yourself, that's something you won't admit. If you're not deceiving yourself, then, Paul says, these are the things you will admit. You'll just say, look, I don't know anything apart from the revelation of God. I don't know anything about salvation, the knowledge of God, or the principles of Christian living. It's only the Word of God that gives us those uh, instructions. And then, on the other side, of course, uh, if you also then uh, admit to the straightforward understanding of the Word of God, just exactly what it says is what you do, where's the division? First of all, Understand you don't know anything apart from what the Word of God says about those things. And secondly, admit that what the Word of God is the authority on those things, and you've bypassed division. And then Paul's next review statement is this. Look at verse 21. So then let no one boast in men. And, of course, we add, why would you, right? Paul's pointing back to what he's just said. Since human wisdom is foolish, let no one boast in men. Uh, since the reasoning of the wise as it relates to salvation, the knowledge of God, the principles for Christian living are useless, which we just read, let no man boast in men. And you can see how Paul can go all the way, through, all the way back through his rebuke. Uh, there shouldn't be division as it relates to men, and that was the problem at Corinth. And a preference issue between differences in the pastors they'd experience. Uh, like he said back in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, he says, So then neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters anything but God who causes the growth. And then we come to this marvelous statement by Paul, reminding them again of the benefits of being a saint. When the Holy Spirit guides Paul to say the, at, at the end of chapter 3, verse 21, look at it says, for all things belong to you. That's a marvelous statement. Now, Paul started, uh, really, chapter 1 and talked about the benefits of being a saint. And then he goes through this rebuke, and then he reminds them, listen, you are a saint, and all things belong to you. And as we saw last time, we just began to look at that last time, we had to close. He means everything, all things. They're all ours. They're all ours for our benefit. And then he's going to kind of dice some of those up and let us see what he's talking about here in just a few minutes. And I said, even the pain in hard times, you can you probably, maybe you're at that point in your life, you're having some difficult times, a, a, a tough stretch, yep, even those. And he's going to really get right down to it here in a few minutes and make sure we understand all of those things belong to us. And as we said last week, obviously, all things are not going to include the wickedness and unrighteousness of this world system. Uh, all things are going to be brought under the subjection of Christ, according to Hebrews 2, 8 through 10. They all belong to you, and some of them may not be completely prepared for you yet, but Paul's fairly clear, make no mistake, all things belong to you. So Paul can say, as a benefit of being a saint, all things are yours. And then Paul's going to name off a few of those, and that's where we're going to start new. Look at verse 22. Whether Paul, he says, or Apollos, or Cephas. So he's going to get right back into the main issue of the reason why he had to teach on division and prompt the church to unity. He's going to get right back in there because these are the names that were talked about at first. So he starts with himself, he starts with Apollos, and he starts with Peter. And he just means this, along with everything God has set aside for you, all the teachers are yours, he says. They're all for your benefit. So whether it's Paul and his you know, amazing preaching of the gospel, his theological knowledge, his enthusiasm for God, or, or it's Apollos, which the scripture says, with his great knowledge and, uh, his, of the Old Testament, his eloquence in speaking, or whether it's Peter with all of his experience with Jesus and the hard lessons he had to learn and all the difficult times he had and all his experience with Pentecost and the first megachurch and all of that, whatever guy it is, okay, Paul says to this divisive, backbiting, complaining Corinthian church, they're all for you. They've all been given just for you. And what Paul implies is how ridiculous it would be then for you to be poor when you could be rich. And they're arguing about teachers and preferences. And Paul asks, why would you want to isolate one teacher when they all belong to you? Instead of enriching themselves, they're impoverishing themselves, really. That's how Paul's going about it. By staking their divisive claim to the benefits of one teacher. Uh, they all were given for the benefit of the church, each difference, each nuance, each preference, all for their benefit. All things are ours, all things, and he'll name some more showing the scope of the, being, of, of the benefit of being a saint here in just a minute. So he says whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, so all the teachers they had all belong to them. And then he says, or the world. See that? Now, as we've said, clearly, he doesn't mean the world's evil system. 
the system of man, which is going to be judged and passed away, which we studied in our book as we worked through the book of Revelation. He just means God's created material universe. The whole universe belongs to you. Did you know that? So next time you walk out of this building, just look around and see what you own, okay? Because that's what it means. It belongs to you, all right? It's all yours. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And that's certainly future. And Paul is talking about certainly that, but he's talking about right now, 1 Corinthians 3.22, the world. So everything that God has made is yours. And if you're a believer, if you're a saint, it's yours. And you can appreciate it as a gift, can't you? An unregenerate man can't appreciate it as a gift. In fact, the unregenerate man thinks it's supposed to last for eternity and going to make sure that it does as best as he can. Big news for your tree huggers. The world wasn't meant to be eternal, okay? It's going to break and fall apart, and it's going to be destroyed, actually, completely. Man, they'll be ticked off during the tribulation. The sea's going to be blood. If that's not bad enough, tsunami's wiping out everything. Okay, so here's the thing. God created the world for believers. Did you know that? It's very clear. You can appreciate it as a gift. He made it for his people, and someday, uh, maybe in the not-too-distant future, the true owner of the world, the one who spoke everything into being, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That person, Jesus Christ, is going to return and take back what belongs to him, and you are joint heirs with Christ. So it all belongs to you. So what Paul says is not uh, him making things up, okay? Not making it bigger than it really is. This is your position, he says, as he talks to this Corinthian church. And so Paul says, for all things belong to you, verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or, what's the next one? Life. What kind of life is he talking about? Well, certainly physical life, uh, spiritual life, eternal life. Uh, John 10.10 certainly takes that in. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly, and that certainly takes in all three, doesn't it? Physical, spiritual, eternal. Now, we're not talking about prosperity theology. We're not talking about God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Okay? He's just saying this. Listen. Life belongs to you. Physical life, spiritual life, eternal life. It all belongs to you. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And listen, we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and Eternal life, it belongs to you. Physical life belongs to you. Spiritual life belongs to you. Eternal life belongs to you. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And who's a joint heir with Christ, beloved? You are. Father loves the Son, given joint heir, has given all things into his hand. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son hath eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Pretty clear. How about Matthew 19, 29? And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. He owns all of it. It all belongs to him. You're joint heirs with Christ. He makes sure he takes care of his own. He owns it all, according to Paul, and it all belongs to you. John 17, verse 3, just so we can confirm this in your mind. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So you have eternal life. If you know Jesus Christ, eternal life belongs to you. And knowing, of course, is described for us in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He brought you to life. God in you, through the spirit of his son, Jesus. Jesus gave you his joy, his peace, his love. You can read it all through the Gospel of John. If you're a saint, you've been redeemed. You have eternal life. You have life. Listen, this is the thing. You have the life now, beloved, that you will possess forever. Did you know that? If you're a believer, you have the life now you're going to possess forever. It's going to become richer and fuller and better and more perfected. But you have that marvelous life already as one who possesses Christ as a Savior. Isn't that the point of John eleven twenty five? 25? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Isn't that the point? If you live and believe in me, you'll never die. You already have the life, you see? And it's going to be perfected, and it's going to be marvelous, and it's going to be richer and fuller and better beyond your wildest imagination, but it already belongs to you, see? Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, all the teachers, they're given for your sake. The world, everything that God has made, belongs to him. 
He's given it to Christ. You're joining us with Christ. It belongs to you and life. And of course, that's the point of raising Lazarus, wasn't it? Life is yours. He said all this and just went over and just ra- called Lazarus out of the grave. Why? Because life belongs to Jesus and he's given it to you. If I live, you will live also, right? You see people around you that are dead, but you're alive. The world is yours, life is yours, and so is the next one, death. That's part of the scope of all things that Paul says. Look back there, if you would. For all things belong to you, verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. Did you know that death is yours? Most people will say, well, who wants it, right? I mean, I'd rather pass on that. And I think that's just because we may be looking at death as a master rather than a slave. We've got a messed up view of death. Sometimes we'll hear, well, you know, we just heard um, this, this person, you know, has, has got some terminal cancer or some disease, they're going to die. You know, in your mind, beloved, you should be thinking, the, the only difference between that person and 100% of everyone else is that we know approximately when it's going to occur. But death belongs to you, see. And if they're a believer, death ushers them into the presence of Jesus. And, we, you know, we want to be sad, and, you know, there certainly be some temporary longing and separation uh, in our life. I mean, I lost, lost my mom a year ago last week. You know, there's some longing in that separation. But here's the thing. As a saint, death has no power over us. But we have such a, real, a really messed up view of death, don't we? We've completely messed it up. Christ has given it to us. It belongs to us, according to Paul. It's a slave, not a master, and we've messed the whole thing up because we bought into the world's uh, thoughts about it. And I think it's best to learn that death has no power over you now when you're healthy and you're not in a hospital room and when your children are healthy and teach it to them. And my children and I had this conversation a good bit, especially when they were younger. And, well, I'll, I'll say, you know, someday dad will die. Dad, you're, you're not going to die. Yes, I am. And that's a good thing. 100% of people die. It's not the issue of whether dad's going to die or not. That's for sure, unless the rapture comes. The thing about it is, is you're, you're going to know exactly where dad is, and that's a good thing. So death is a slave to us, not our master. We don't fear that, right? We rejoice in the fact that it's now a defeated foe. Death belongs to you. It isn't a master. It's a slave. It delivers you to Jesus. It delivers you from, listen, the struggle of sin in your flesh. It delivers you from all the earthly stuff that we sometimes invite to invade into our relationship with Christ. You understand that, don't you? You look around your life and see the stuff that you've invited in that's invaded your relationship with Christ and corrupted it. On your side, of course. You get delivered from all of that. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. You know, it's so great. Death doesn't even get to choose the time it's such a slave. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That doesn't sound like a bad thing, does it? Not if you know Christ as your Savior. He's going to come a second time for salvation without reference to sin to all who believe. Death doesn't even get to pick the time. Jesus told us the story of the, the wealthy merchant, you perhaps remember this, who laid all the treasure up on earth and, and built extra barns and tore down his old ones and did all of that. And then, uh, of course, didn't lay anything up in heaven, Luke 12, 20. He was told that his soul was required of him. Death doesn't even get to pick the time. It's time now for your soul to be required. Isaiah 25, 8, this marvelous precursor to all that uh, the Gospels would say to us and Jesus himself. And John in Revelation, he says this, He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he'll remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Death belongs to you, see. And even Isaiah, 700 years before the Messiah, is telling us, Listen, death is going to be a defeated foe. It's not your master, it's a slave. And all it can do is usher you into the presence of Jesus for which you've eagerly awaited anyway. Is that anything to be afraid of? I'd say that's something to look forward to, wouldn't you say? That's what Paul said in Philippians 1.21, see? And Paul had the right perspective on it, didn't he? Because he understood that death belonged to him. For to me to live is Christ and to die is, what did he say? What's it say, beloved? Gain. And that, there it is right there. That, 
there it is in Paul's life. Life is his, right? For me to live is Christ. Life is his, and to die is gain. And death is his too, right? But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will be, uh, mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. And of course, Paul didn't get to choose. The Lord chose that for him, didn't he? Verse 23, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And then the for me is implied here, because he says, and yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul says, listen, it'd be great, much better to go and be with the Lord, but it's much better for you for me to stay here. I don't know which one I like better, Paul says. But certainly to go and be with Christ is gain, and so death is a defeated foe, it's a slave. 1 Corinthians 15, where is the sting of death? Where is the victory of the grave? There's no sting, there's no victory anymore. That's all been taken away. The sting of death is gone. It belongs to you now. So now, go back to 1 Corinthians 3.22. All things really means all things, doesn't it? And Paul just beginning to give us the sampling of what he's talking about. For all things belong to you, verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, here's the next one, or things present. And that would be, beloved, just all the situations, all the people, all the substance of your present life. All of those things. Like we said before, does it mean the hard times? Yes, it does. It means the good times, the hard times, all the difficult people, all the people who are such a blessing to you, and everything in between. All the sweet parts of life, all the hard parts of life, all the circumstances and experiences of your life are all for you. They're all for your good. They're all for your blessing. And even things we would consider bad are part of the things that God works together for Good. See. Even things we would look at to be, that was not something I would choose. Those are things that the Lord works together for good. There's an old commentary by R.C.H. Linsky. And he really captures this marvelous thought really well. So I want to tell you about it. Quote, It is as if this multitude of servants surrounded us on bended knee, hold out their precious offerings to us, some of these servants, like pain, injury, sickness, grief, and death, may at first have a strange look to us who do not know our own royal sufficiency. That is just marvelous. It is God who commissions them all and make each one bring us some blessing, end quote. That's that captures it exactly. We might even recognize that the gifts, Paul says, belong to us, we even want. They're all servants, though bent down, offering them to you. And so God uses all of that in conforming us to the image of Christ. And so all along the way, our journey is supplied for, and it shouldn't surprise us then that the end is provided for as well, because that's the next thing, right? All things belong to you, whether Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the world, life, death, or things present, or what? Things to come. And we just sum it up like this. Whatever is prepared for tomorrow or a hundred thousand tomorrows after that, okay? Because we can be secure that if it's prepared for us tomorrow by the same person who's preparing it for us for eternity, then it all belongs to us. That's a pretty secure place to be, isn't it? Whatever happens to come along, Paul knows that as a benefit of being a saint, it's all yours. And then he just re re reaffirms this. All things, he says, belong to you. And then he starts to wrap up this thought. Here we go. And the reason why all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, is because, what's the next one? You belong to Christ. Because apart from him, we're bankrupt and have nothing. And as John was instructed to tell the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.17, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, to sum it up. That's what you were before. Apart from Christ, that's what we are. But because we're Christ, all things belong to us. And then the old commentator, Matthew Henry, and I hardly ever do this, but there were just two things I just wanted to share with you uh, here. This is really great. He does a great job with this, okay? You can read this sometime at your leisure. Matthew Henry gets it right. He says this, And at the same time that all things belong to you, you belong to Christ. And he says, quote, We are Christ's, the subject of his kingdom, his property. He is Lord over us. And we must own his dominion and cheerfully submit to his command and yield ourselves to his pleasure if we would have all things minister to our advantage. He goes on and says, All things are ours upon no other ground than our being Christ. Out of him we are without just title or claim 
to anything that is good. And Christ belongs to God. He is the Christ of God, anointed of God, and commissioned by him to bear the office of mediator and to act therein for the purposes of his glory. Note, all things are the believers, he says, that Christ might have honor in his great undertaking and God in all might have the glory. God in Christ, reconciling a sinful world to himself and shedding abroad the riches of his grace to a on a reconciled world is the sum and substance of the gospel, end quote. He's got it exactly right. Linsky says, they're all servants, bending down, offering them up. They all belong to you. We may not even recognize some of them, and we may not even want some of them until we recognize our royal position. And Matthew Henry says, listen, you wouldn't have anything apart from being in Christ, and that's all for God's glory, reconciling a world to himself. All are for Christ's sake. Every believer belongs to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Is there any division in that list? That's Paul's point. We all belong to the same Christ who belongs to the one God. We are one. He's simply saying there's no basis for division. That's the point. The reason we possess everything is because we're all Christ, and Christ, God, Christ is God's, and there's no discord there. Okay? Bring us right back to what we're talking about. We're talking about... Paul wants the church to be healthy as the Holy Spirit carries them along. Unity is part of a healthy church. It's not healthy in Corinth. There's division there. How do we solve it? Paul goes through it as the Holy Spirit carries them along. Psalm 84, verse 11. Very all-encompassing illustration of this marvelous provision that comes along through what the Lord has provided us in Christ. Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory, no good thing, does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. That's just a marvelous psalm to, to memorize. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. Look back there. We're going to move on to the next section. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, verse 23, and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Now, Paul says, all things belong to you. All men, including your teachers, belong to Christ, therefore to you by your union with him. So he makes them all, and all things work together for your good. You're not for their sake. Uh, they are for your sake, he says. Okay? You're not for their sake. They're for your sake. And that idea then, this Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, is the precise one Paul brings in this next comment. He says this, because Paul, Apollos, Peter, etc., are for you, then, what attitude is to be in place concerning pastors here at Corinth and everywhere else? And that's the point Paul's going to make now. He's actually going to take it to task, the attitude that they're bringing, how they're evaluating or whatever it is, and he's going to say, okay, this is how you're supposed to go about it. And Paul's going to answer that question. And of course, if there were, there's no chapter breaks in the original letter. Okay, so Paul just flows right into this proper evaluation, and he gets pretty serious pretty quickly. So read it that way, okay? Let's start at 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, so we get the idea where Paul's going. So then... That no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let a man regard us in this manner, chapter 4, verse 1, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Verse 3, but to me... It's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, verse 4, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, verse 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring, uh, both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and each man will, man's praise will come to him from God. Stop right there. One of the popular games that people play in church, among many games that are played in church, is the game of evaluating the pastor. And all kinds of criteria have been proposed as the criteria and the standard that should be part of that evaluation. And that was certainly the case in Corinth. And I suppose that because ministers are in the public eye and because we're always up front, it's tempting to rank and uh, rate them and whatever, however we go about it. And the game is very common. And it's sometimes based on whether or not they appeal to you or not or whether or not uh, they're doing what you would do, or perhaps how they preach, or uh, their popularity with people, or maybe their social status, or any number of things. That's how the game is played. Paul and Apollos and Peter were being ranked, obviously, or Paul wouldn't have to go through this whole portion of Scripture. And in the minds of the church, uh, because uh, some of them perhaps were saying, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 1.12, uh, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. 
Obviously, those who said they were of Christ thought they were probably superior, but Paul brings them to task because they're divisive too. Okay? If you're of Christ, then you wouldn't have had to say, but I'm of Christ. All right? So Paul brings them all to task. But the three men there particularly are in his view, three godly men, and yet the church is picking between them. And that type of evaluation by this church in Corinth is going to be Paul's focus. Because by the nature of their worldly wise and fleshly evaluation, they were no doubt picking out things that they didn't like about one or more of them or choosing what they liked or what fit them best. And most importantly, because Paul spends all of his time on this, using non-biblical ways to evaluate both. Uh, because remember, Paul had already reproved them in chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4. Remember what he said to them? He said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Paul started with them as infants. He planted the church there. He gave them, of course, 18 months of doctrine, and how quickly could you grow under Paul's teaching? Uh, he preached long sermons, much longer than mine, I might add. Uh, some of them went half a day and full day, okay? And so consider yourself lucky that we, you know, you're not falling out of the window there to the parking lot because no one's here to bring you back to life. So, uh, but Paul preached long sermons. Of course, 18 months of teaching the church, you could have grown. What did he say? But you didn't grow. You didn't grow. You're fleshly, and you couldn't understand what I was saying, and you can't understand it now. So Paul's bringing them to task. He says, listen, this is going on in the church, and here's why it's going on. You're worldly wise. You're bringing all your outside stuff into the church and saying, this is how we do it. And then you're just fleshly. You don't understand all this stuff, okay? You're not understanding what I'm saying. So Paul says, listen, you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? So it's outcome-based. Because there's strife, you are fleshly. Because there's jealousy, because there's criticism, because there's preferences expressed outwardly, because you're not all saying the same thing as we saw earlier, there is fleshliness, there is uh, ungodliness there. Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? So he just says, listen, you're saying this, so it's obvious, all right? So he knows they don't know how to evaluate correctly, so he's going to give them some guidelines. And in five verses, he packs it in pretty tight, okay? He gives them instruction in four areas, and there they are. You can copy them down if you'd like. We won't get to all of them today, and that's not a surprise to you. He gives us a distinctiveness of a minister. He gives us some characteristics of a minister. He gives us the outlook of a minister and the appraisal of a minister. Now, I tried to make those all the same letter, and there was no way in the world I could do it with the best thesaurus in the world, all right? And usually I'm not smart enough to do that anyway, so just consider yourself fortunate that you got that, all right? Anyway, here's the thing. We just take what, how the Bible outlines it. We just use it. We're not trying to manufacture something and force it in there, okay? So, Paul's point to start with, then, uh, relating initially, okay, to these three guys who pastor, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, and then every other pastor, see, is really just knowing who the minister is, who the pastor is. That's all he's going to make sure they understand. Who he works for, who he is, and then they'll be under, able to understand the proper attitude towards Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and every other guy who pastors. So we're going to start with this first one, get as far as we can this morning, because each of these evaluations can really stand on their own. And as I said to begin, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, there's much more application in each of these verses than we could ever make in one service, okay? So I'm going to make as many applications as I can. You continue to study. You have the same tutor and the same book that I have, and you can expand that all out, okay? And answer your questions. If you have more questions, shoot them over to me, and we'll, we'll take some time to do a Q&A. Let's just start with this first one. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stop right there, okay? Three key words there, and you can see them in verse 1, all right? And I highlighted them there for your benefit. He starts out by saying, regard us. Let a man regard us, he says, in this manner. This is to be our consideration. We are ministers of Christ. Let that be, uh, let you be, let that be your thought. We're ministers of Christ. That's the first word. That regard is the verb logizomai, present middle imperative. Now, if there's ever a command in Scripture to do it and make it happen right now, that's it, okay? You're going to have to generate this, okay? Start doing this, Paul says, and make this the, your continual way of life. Regard us this way. This is going to be a change, obviously, or Paul would have had to bring it to light here, right? I mean, obviously, it's something different than what they're doing. Or Paul wouldn't have to make it present middle imperative. He says, I'm going to give you the distinctiveness of the one who leads the church. So from now on, he says, regard them in this way. Which way? Next word. Servants of Christ. Huperetes. That's a noun. It's not the word diakonos, which is, I think Paul doesn't use deacon, so he doesn't confuse the offices because he's not talking about a deacon here. The word is used in the New Testament at times of officers and attendants of magistrates, but the word literally means under rower. 
regard us as under rowers, and there's not a lot of dignity in that term. And I'll bring to your mind, if you will, an illustration that will help you see it. How many seen the movie Ben-Hur? A bunch of times, right? And if you remember the character who plays Ben-Hur, he's chained in a galley below decks. And what's he doing? He's rowing. And does anybody care about him? Pretty much no. Now, of course, the illustration breaks down because in Ben-Hur, he's got somebody standing over him with a whip, and as soon as he stops rowing, he gets hit, and Christ never does that, okay? But I think the illustration works as well enough to know that that's not a high position, is it? It's an under-rower. Regard us as an under-rower, Christ said. That's, uh, Paul says that's the first distinction. Now, you notice that Paul describes himself and Apollos and Peter and every other man who has or is serving in the position of pastor as a servant of Christ. Now, we talk a lot about serving people, and that certainly is important. But the first distinction is not that, is it? The first distinction is a servant of Christ. And I think the right balance there is, is that when a pastor serves Christ, he'll best serve his people. But when the focus is on the people, he may not best serve Christ, okay? In other words, sometimes when a man gets focused too much on filling the needs or the wants of people, he may violate that which God wants him to do. Or he may compromise true spiritual principles to make sure that everybody's happy and that he's doing what everybody wants him to do, okay? But that's not what the first distinction is. He's an under-roarer, which is a servant of Christ, an under-roarer of Christ. And if the pastor is keeping at the forefront of his mind that he's always serving Christ, then he'll be most useful to Christ's people, although not always apparent all the time, okay? Now, and I just add this, the only reason why we're even useful at all is because the Lord chooses to use us as an under-roarer, and we're nothing, Okay? The one who sows and the one who waters is nothing but God who gives the increase. And we just saw that and we looked at it, so we won't go back and go through it again. You understand? These are all in balance, and Paul makes no break here. He just moves right into this, regardless in this way. Okay? Now, this is not a new thought for Paul. It's how the apostles all thought of themselves. Okay? Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Inasmuch, Luke says, as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, here's the word, and servants, underroars of the word. Okay? And there's that same word, underroar, again. And it really defines even better for those who serve as pastors. Why is that? Well, really because to serve Christ is to obey his what? What is it, beloved? This is important. To serve Christ is to obey his word. And we've got that confused in modern Christianity, okay? We, serve, we want to serve Christ and define it ourselves. But to serve Christ is to obey his word. To glorify God is to make his attributes visible, right? And we, we've redefined that in modern Christianity too. We think whatever we do can glorify God, but that's not true. It's to the point that we make him visible and him clear and his attributes clear that we glorify God. So we can sing all day long and never glorify God if we're not trying to make his attributes visible, okay? And you can serve in Sunday school from now to the cows come home and it won't make any difference because if you're not doing it to make him visible, but only because you think you should or because you want somebody to think you're spiritual, then you're not glorifying God, you see? And it works the same way with obedience to Christ. You're only obedient to the point that you obey what the Word says. That's it. You're servants, under rowers, Luke says, of the Word. His commands are here, okay? And that's the revelation of his will. And listen, beloved, I don't get up in the morning and then say to the Lord, you know, I want to serve you now. I'm just checking in. What do you want me to do? I don't have to do that, see? You know what I do when I want to know what, what he wants me to do? I just read this. I have people come up to me a lot, not recently, but in the past, and say, God spoke to me. And I'm really jealous about that because I've never heard God audibly speak to me ever in my entire life. All I've had is what his word says, okay? And I'll be honest with you. And if God's spoken to you, I'm not accusing you. I'll just say this. I wouldn't even know if it were God speaking to me or if it was myself deceiving me, you see? So I don't have any meter inside of me that says, that's self, that's God. I don't have that. All I have is what the Word says. And so what I read then is consistent with God's thoughts, and so I, I don't have to ever wonder, is this what God wants me to do? I don't give up in the morning and say, show me what to do, God, okay? Now I do say, as I prepare sermons every week in my Monday quiet time, these are your people they're best served by your word. And so I really want to know from your word the best applications to make as I break it down. I do want to know that because there are lots of applications we can make. One translation, lots of applications. So I want to know that. But I don't say, Lord, you know, speak to me and tell me what to do. I already have that. And so that's what Luke saw. He saw it that way. The apostles saw, he saw the apostles that way. Listen, you know, that's a revelation of his commands. And I'm a galley slave to him, therefore to his word. And so... 
Like Luke saw the apostles that way. When Jesus called Paul on the Damascus Road, that's exactly the word he used for Paul. According to Paul, Acts 26, 16, he's given the story. He says this, but get up, this is what he heard, and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister, huperetes, again, an underroar, and a witness, a martus, a martyr, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you. You're an underroar, Paul. I'm calling you right now. And that's not exactly the way to attract employees if you're a company, but this isn't a job fair, okay? He just says, listen, you're an underroar. That's your position. It's not asking you if you like it and the benefits that come with it. Because on the earth, there won't be a lot. And Paul uses it of himself and Apollos and Peter and every pastor who's come along. So he uses the same word here. He says, listen, regard us in this way. We're under rowers of Christ, galley slaves. And so Paul says to them, whenever you're tempted to rank ministers and judge them, remember, first of all, they're slaves to Christ first. And you get the perspective, right? Nobody gets glory for doing what they're told to do, right? You're an under roar. You're not getting glory for that, all right? You just get into trouble for not doing it. Paul says, listen, if I don't do it, that's when it's trouble. So a man who preaches because God's called him isn't worthy of any special honor. He's just worthy of dishonor if he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. If he doesn't become an under-roar of Christ first, see, then he's worthy of dishonor. And 1 Corinthians, 1, 9, we'll, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, we'll see when we get there. Um, he says, you know, I'm going to be worthy of dishonor if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul will reveal a little of what it's looked like for him to be an under-roar. He'll just kind of talk about all of his past a little bit, just kind of sum it up for them. He's very disrespectful to Paul here in Corinth and, and uh, ran him down and, and taunted him and all kinds of things. And so Paul knows what he speaks about here as he talks about these things. Now the third word here, as we have time, we'll just get it in. In this first verse, in this, you know, uh, is really the second word you just described the distinctiveness of a minister. First one is regard us this way, so I'm giving you this command. You have to make this happen. Change your attitude and start now and do it now. And he says, I'm an under roar. And then this third word, that's the key word here, says, we'll go back to 1 Corinthians 4.1, if you would. <clears throat> that a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Oikonomos. Oikos is the house and nomos is the manager. So in the New Testament times, that word is the word for manager of a household or household affairs. It's someone to whom the head of the house or the proprietor of the business entrusts to the management of his affairs, the care of receipts, the expenditures, all that stuff. A house owner would have a steward. A steward would manage the household affairs, his property, his farm, his vineyards, whatever it may be, his accounts, his slaves, his food, taking into account all that kind of stuff. He's just a manager uh, of the, the house. He would dispense, take care of those things, make sure everything went well. He doesn't own the house. Uh, he, he may have been a slave promoted to that position. He may have been a free man hired to do it. Either way, it doesn't matter. The responsibility is what matters. That's the point Paul's going to make. Uh, many places in the world that speak, uh, in the Word of God, that speak of this position, particularly ones that you'll be very familiar with in the Old Testament, Joseph earned that position in Potiphar's house, if you remember, that Potiphar didn't even have to worry about the bread that was on his table. Joseph became that for Potiphar. And later, Joseph, when he's exalted in Egypt, remember, he has a steward, doesn't he? Remember when his, his brothers came and he had a steward? That's the word used there. Make sure they have food. Make sure they have the grain. Put the money back in their bag. All the, so he just kind of managed for Joseph and did it. So we understand uh, the whole process. So in general, I want to make sure that you understand, all believers are stewards, okay? Uh, that's the whole point of 1 Peter 4.10. So understand this. Uh, as each one has received, and we looked at this before, so you're familiar with this verse. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving. That's from the verb dekoneo. That's where we get the office of deacon. Serving. Here it means attending to. Okay, but it, it's a table waiter, a deacon table waiter. But here it's attend to one another as good, mark this, stewards. Okonomos. What's each believer told to be a good manager of? What's the last part? Be good stewards of. The manifold grace of God. And that's expressed in your special gift, serving one another. The grace of God poured out in you, poured out in others, right? Spiritual gifts are for the benefit of the church. And as you faithfully minister them inside the local church, you are being a good steward of the manifold grace of God. So all believers in that respect are stewards. God has deposited, if you look at it this way, in you resources in the form of spiritual gifts. When you use your spiritual gift in the church to attend to one another, you're being a good steward. And conversely, and I must throw this in there, when you're not using your spiritual gifts to serve the body, you're disobeying this passage. 
And we have some openings in ministry here, so you can look at me, you know, catch me afterwards, and we'll, uh, we'll sign you up, okay? So you can stop disobeying this passage. But when you're doing it, you're obeying fully, all right? You're being a good steward of the manifold graces of God. But specifically in context, in 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul's directing his comments towards those who serve the church as pastors. That's the point, okay? And you can see that context flowing out of chapter 3. In Titus 1.7, Paul uses the same term. He says, for the overseer, so he just uses the word for bishop, the overseer must be above reproach as God's, and there, there's the word, steward. So in particular, Paul tells the Corinthians, when they get ready to play this evaluation game with those that pastor the church, regard them in this way. Under rower, also manager of the goods God wants to dispense to the house and have it taken care of. So what are God's goods? What are we to dispense? Those who serve in the area of pastor. The Paul, Apollo, Cephas, and everybody else who comes after. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You're stewards of the mysteries, he says. A Greek noun, mysterion. We've studied that word many times. It is uh, where we get our word mystery. It is... Um, something that was hidden and now revealed. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a mystery back in Daniel 2. God revealed it to Daniel, and Daniel revealed it to the king. That was a mystery that was revealed through Daniel's presence there and the Holy Spirit revealing it to Daniel. In Daniel 2.28, of course, it says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That is true. That's exactly what we bank on, isn't it? That's how we understand the gospel, right? The gospel was a mystery now revealed to believers, Matthew 13.11. Uh, Israel grafted out temporarily and in the future grafted back in was a mystery that's been revealed according to Romans chapter 11, verse 25. The church was a mystery according to Colossians 1, 24 through 26. The fact that not everyone is going to die because there will be some taken up in the rapture, that was a mystery that was now revealed according to 1 Corinthians 15, 51. So as we understand the word of God, it was a mystery that's now being revealed. Okay, So lots of mysteries have been revealed, and I'm just barely scratching the surface of the things that were not known but are now known through the word of God. And that's what Paul's saying about the, the distinction of a pastor. See, he's an under rower. He's the manager of a household. God has deposited his word, his resources, and God says, I, and, and Paul says, I, Apollos, Peter, every other pastor are to take those resources and dispense them to the household. That's their job. When I do, uh, when I try to examine my ministry, when I look at myself and say, you know, I know I'm supposed to do it, it's really a simple thing. I simply say, uh, God has called me to take his word and, uh, and to pass it on to his people. I've been entrusted with the resources of his word, and I'm to administer them. That's all. See? And I do that as an under rower. And Paul says, if you want to play the game of evaluation, that's where you want to start. Okay. And the thing I want to do is, as I look at myself, is make sure I don't mess it up along the way. Okay? When I get ready to deliver it, I want to make sure that I get it to you the way God intended it for it to be delivered. Not the way I want to process it, okay? not what I think necessarily about it, but how God communicated it to the first reader. That's what we want to make sure we communicate to you. So I don't want to mess that up. Okay? And that's the job of every single person who teaches. You want to make sure you take the word of God. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? Okay? That's your job. The hard stuff, the joyful stuff, the teaching, the reproof, the correction, the instruction in righteousness, 1 Timothy 3.16, all of those things are contained in a typical message that's given by an under rower, a servant, a steward, who ministers the, the, the uh, mysteries of God. Okay? All of that kind of stuff. Joyful stuff, hard stuff, reproof, correction, training, instruction, so that he wants the church then to be adequate for every good work. Acts 20, verse 20 uh, we're going to end with this because we're out of time. Paul says this, You know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. Now the question for me is, how did he know what was profitable? Well, that was an easy one to answer, isn't it? Because if you know 2 Timothy 3.16, you know what? All scripture is profitable, right? It's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture is profitable. That's how Paul knew it was profitable. He didn't stop in any part. He just did the whole thing. Hard parts, easy parts, reproof, correction, instruction, training, whatever it is. You want to be good stewards of the mysteries of God. And so he just gives it out without messing it up. So, Paul addresses this disease of division. A division that's very contagious. And he says, listen, you're divided about these guys, okay? The fact that you're divided at all shows that you're sinful. It shows that you're uh, 
infantile in your understanding and worldly. But if you really want to talk about making this evaluation, you want to play this game, okay? And he's, it's first, first point is Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. You're divided in your evaluation of us. If you want to evaluate us, if you're regarding us in some way, then do it this way. Let a man regard us in this manner. As servants of Christ, under rowers of Christ, and stewards, keepers of the house, of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ first, and through serving him, serving you. And as house stewards, given the task of passing out the resources of the word. Now, we're out of time. So next week, Paul's going to move on. He's going to talk about what that stewardship should look like. And we're going to get into the other points of uh, Paul's message here. And if more under rowers and house managers took this teaching to heart, there would be less spiritual malnutrition in the body. If we just did what we already understand needs to be done. Giving the word of God out. God's people were made for God's word. So we're going to look at all of that next time as the Lord permits, as Paul evaluates his own ministry. And then by that evaluation, reveal some of the characteristics of a pastor. All right? So that's where we are. hope that's a blessing to you and encouraging to you. And... Uh, can build you up in the knowledge of the word. Let's um, close in a word of prayer. A couple of quick announcements. A fun day today, uh, later on, and so I'll tell you about that in just a second. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you today for your word. We're particularly grateful that it is uh, addressing some areas that can tend to be difficult to talk about if you just pull them up as a topic. Uh, certainly division, certainly uh, unity, uh, the things that are going on, in, uh, infantile Christianity a mile wide, an inch deep, worldly wisdom being brought in to evaluate uh, the teachings of the gospel and, and the principles of godly living and all of those things. Lord, so we are grateful that your word just takes them on. And in particular, this Christ, uh, Corinthian church, which had uh, so many difficult things going on, but then also had many good things about it. But Paul then, as he addresses these things, allows us to see them as well and correct our own thinking. And so, Lord, I pray that that will be the case, that you will come and not find any of us in an infantile manner, unable to understand even the simplest things from the word, and in no case bringing worldly wisdom or what you brought in from the outside uh, to bear on spiritual things, on the gospel, on principles of godly living. And Father, as we move on into these other things and Paul's evaluates himself, help us to understand how that's supposed to go then. That we desire, as every church does, to be a church uh, that's unified. And Father, you give these passages and sometimes they're taught uh, for preventative measures, sometimes they're taught for corrective measures measures, and Lord, you apply them as be the case. Lord, I pray that uh, we'll walk with you this week, that we'll be uh, given to the tasks, the simple tasks you've given us of giving out the gospel, uh, making disciples, teaching them everything you've taught us. That's our primary job. Help us not to miss any of those opportunities. That's how the church grows and continues to flourish as we who are those who are called by your name are also sharing the gospel clearly. Thank you for the many ministries that will go on this week. Uh, for our midweek ministries, Lord, I pray that you encourage the teachers who are there. I thank you for the blessing of their, uh, you using them for the kingdom here. Thank you for the blessing of fellowship that will occur midweek. All these things we pray to draw attention to you, uh, your faithfulness of your son, and the Holy Spirit work among us. And we give you praise today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.